Hello and welcome to the very first edition of Chapter and Verse, The Art of Selling Children's Books, brought to you by Rocket and the Bookseller Magazine. My name is Charlotte Eyre and I am so excited to be presenting this podcast, which is all about helping you guys get your books into the hands of readers. Today's guest is an actor, comedian and writer who is known for his roles in TV and film such as The Armstrong and Miller Show, Paddington 2 and the lockdown hit, perhaps the biggest lockdown hit, Bridgerton. He has written several children's books and 2021 is shaping up to be his biggest year yet in publishing, according to Simon Schuster. He is, of course, Ben Miller. I spoke to Ben about his most recent novel, The Day I Fell Into a Fairy Tale, as well as the importance of making fairy tales relevant to the young generation and his journey in children's books. Later on, you will also hear from Georgia Henry, a campaign manager at Rocket, who will talk us through how she makes books like Ben's take off commercially. But for now, here's Ben Miller. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, your um, latest book, The Day I Fell Into a Fairy Tale, has just come out in paperback. So let's talk about that first. What is that book about? So, well, I mean, the background to this is I've been writing a story for each of my children. I've got three children. And the first book, The Night I Met Father Christmas, was a story about my oldest son, Jackson. Mm -hmm. The second book, uh, The Boy Who Made the World Disappear, was for my middle son, Harrison. And so the pressure was on. I had to write a story for my daughter and I knew that she loved Alice in Wonderland. And also I stumbled across a sort of ladybird version of Rumpelstiltskin that she absolutely loved. And I then had the idea of writing a story about her falling into the world of fairy tales and having an adventure there. So the book is called The Day I Fell Into a Fairy Tale. And uh, the main character, Lana, is a little bit lonely. Her older brother, Harrison, has started taking his schoolwork very seriously. And then one day, this mysterious supermarket crops up on the edge of their village, and she discovers there's a portal in the pick and mix that leads to the land of fairy tales. And on the other side is this, well, you know, obligatory witch um, that uh, she then has to get Harrison's help to defeat. And that brings them back together as a brother and sister. Which fairy tale does she fall into? The first story she falls into is, is Sleeping Beauty. And then when I was doing my research, you know, I was reading a lot of uh, Grimm's fairy tales and then the, going back and finding the earliest versions I can and finding the sort of, that some of the earliest versions I found were sort of medieval versions of these fairy tales. And I discovered that the Sleeping Beauty story originally, the bit where Sleeping Beauty wakes up, where the prince kisses Sleeping Beauty and she wakes up, is only halfway through the original story. And in the original story, the prince and Sleeping Beauty then go on to have children and the witch comes back to try and get the children. So I thought, well, that's a really, that seems to sort of tie in with Hansel and Gretel. And I loved this idea that this, the, the, the witch had this sort of um, familiar and I really liked the idea that the character of Rumpelstiltskin was this familiar. And yeah, so then it all started to come together, really. Mm, yeah, I did a bit of digging when I read your book. So reading about the different versions of the of the fairy tales. And uh, I didn't realise quite how dark the Sleeping Beauty was. You know, there's versions where she's she's literally raped, isn't she? And that is why, you know, she, she gets these two children. And funnily enough, you left that out of uh, your version. I've even left the sort of prince kissing the kissing Sleeping Beauty without asking. Uh, I've even left that out. So yeah, it was important to me that it was a sort of a telling of the story that fits the times we're in now, you know, rather than kind of, wasn't trying to, um, well, I read all those versions of those stories. And, you know, of course, I, it's hard to know what those stories meant to those people at the time. But my guess would be that 
those things were acceptable or in some way, current, you know, they had currency at the time. Whereas, you know, I think we shouldn't get precious about fairy tales. Fairy tales are always rewritten and adapted. And really it's the external circumstances of, of fairy tales that make them contemporary. But what makes them important and what, what grips us is really something altogether different. It's, they really speak to us on a really deep level. There's something, I, I, I often say it's like, hearing a fairy tale is like somebody telling you a weird cheese dream they had the night before. You know, they say, well, I fell asleep and I was in this tower. This witch took me to the top of this tower and I grew my hair to the bottom, <laughs> to the bottom of the tower so, I could, so somebody could climb up to the tower to get me. I mean, it's all, it's slightly sort of fevered yeah. and strange. And yet it means it, it means something to us. And that's what's really fascinating about fairy tales is we don't really know what they mean. Yeah. And that's what I love about them as a writer. We don't know what they mean. We know they're important. We know they speak to something really primal inside us. They speak to us on a really deep level. We're not entirely sure what they're saying. What you do know is at the end of a fairy tale, you genuinely feel like you've gained something. Mm. You feel like you've either gained a little bit of purchase on the world or you feel like you've gained an understanding of yourself or you you feel like you've understood maybe in some fairy tales you feel like you've understood evil a little bit better or you've understood uh, innocence a little bit better you know there's always there's always something that we take away from them but it's never a moral that's the interesting thing it's never it never seems to be a moral in the fairy tale yes i mean i, I thought it was interesting that um Lana in the book, she's told quite early on that these are too scary for you. And that yeah. almost piques her interest more. Yeah. She wants to discover this dark world, which is mysterious. She doesn't quite know where she's going when she enters the supermarket, but she's eager to know more, isn't she? Yes. Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. That's everybody's always telling her that she can't read them. Mm. You know, I know it's too, too scary for you. No, you're not ready for that yet. You're not, you're not. And, um, and I just remember that as a child, you know, I just remember always thinking, but I want to watch Doctor Who. My parents say, no, you're not an old, old enough for Doctor Who yet. Yeah. Doctor Who is too scary for you. You're going to have to wait until you're 10 or something like that, you know, which was like a hundred years away. Mm -hmm. So that's, I feel like that's, children live in this sort of suspense of waiting to get to an age when they can do X or Y or, yeah. you know, so I felt like, um, you know, I felt that certainly resonated with what, what I could remember as a child. I think there's also what something that you get across really nicely in this book is that children and people use fairy tales to yes understand the world but then tell their own stories yeah because Lana actually gets out of a sticky situation in the book doesn't she because she has to tell a story to trick another character and that's really her journey in the story mm. is to go from is to learn to use her imagination so at the beginning of the story, she's kind of overwhelmed by these fairy tales that she discovers and she finds them. She doesn't really understand, you know, she doesn't really understand where she is or they seem to be moving too fast for her to keep up with them. And by the end, she has to, the way that she is able to defeat the witch is by creating her own fairy tale, using some of what's happened to her and Harrison to weave to weave a sort of fairy tale, a magical fairy tale plot mm. that will leave the witch, sorry, the witch is familiar, constantly wanting to know what happens next. It's a little bit of the Shahrazade. I wanted to get just a touch of the sort of Shahrazade story in there at the end as well. Mm. You did touch a bit on how much, you know, reading around fairy tales for this. I mean, did you do a lot of research before you put pen to paper? I did loads of research. Yeah, I mean, it was, we can hardly call it research. I just read lots of <laughs> fairy tales. It's really, really fun. So 
I just started collecting, you know, when I was, I'm a great browser. So whenever I was in a bookshop, I would browse the um, fairy tale section. And uh, a couple of years ago, three years ago, whenever it was, I started to work on this, started with some really beautiful editions of Grimm's fairy tale. Some of the original Grimm stories were republished. And yeah, and I read a lot. I read a lot of reversion fairy tales as well. And I quickly sort of figured out that what I needed to do was go earlier and earlier and earlier and sort of go back and back and back. And eventually I sort of came to that came to that conclusion that, that the fairy tales I really loved were the ones I had no idea what they meant, mm-hmm. but they really stayed with me. They were the ones that really resonated and I felt they were important, but I didn't know what they were about. Mm. Those seem to be the big fish in the pond, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. At this point, I wanted to bring in my recent conversation with Georgia. Georgia works at Rocket as a campaign manager and has worked on the promotion of Ben's books before. We had a chat about what publishers take from a book like The Day I Fell Into a Fairy Tale to use in its marketing and promotional plans. We also talked about TikTok, the importance of knowing your competitors and working out what other types of media your readers consume. Georgia, Ben talked about making fairy tales relevant or suitable for a modern audience. How would you, as a marketing expert, approach that issue? I think with fairy tales, obviously, they're kind of the main thing you think of when you think of a children's book, as everyone knows those. They're all the ones that were made into Disney movies. (laughs) You'd think it would be really easy because it's a story everyone knows, but actually, you've got to think about the fresh spin that's being told and sell that in which is what's really magical about it as well. And it's like Ben said, that's when the power of the illustrator can can be massive because they, you know, without sitting someone down and reading them the story cover to cover, it can be quite hard to to demonstrate what's so special about this retelling. Whereas if you have an illustrator who's really like getting that imagination to jump out at you from the page, if you can use that as part of the marketing, you'll get people to buy into it just because of of how amazing it looks. Um, And it's like telling them a story that feels familiar and feels safe in a really new and inspiring way. Okay. Now, outside of the storyline of a book, what else is included in the marketing? It depends who the author is. Luckily, with someone like Ben, he's pretty well known. So a lot of the parents we're speaking to about his books will already know him from TV or from everything he's been doing. And, you know, we've we've created content for his campaigns before and we've used him on the voiceover. And as you'll hear from listening to him, he's got a great voice and him talking about his own story. You know, it brings it to life in a really beautiful way. So that's definitely included. And then along with that, you know, throw in the main themes and, you know, the main magic of the story without giving away too many spoilers. Could you give us um, an example of a campaign that you did with Ben and what it consisted of? Recently, we've done some really fun things on TikTok. We've been working with some families who are on there and they have been creating videos for the day I fell into a fairy tale and showing their kids being so busy reading it that they won't do anything else, which is fantastic and and so much fun so is tiktok quite a new thing for you guys because it it feels like something we as an audience haven't been hearing about for that long relatively i it's taking over my life a little bit um i would say we've been doing it for probably just over a year now i've worked with quite a lot of publishers what i would say is definitely new is is coming down to a more middle grade and family audience parents are getting on there now about a year ago it was predominantly ya maybe some teen things if the messaging was right but generally it was the book talk YA core audience who are still there and they're wonderful but it's becoming a lot more mainstream now and parents are on there so you can do an alternative to an Instagram or YouTube campaign and especially for a book that you want to 
you know, have quite an illustrative message as rather than having an image, it allows for such more in-depth content and you can be quite funny on there as well, which is a real bonus. That's so interesting. Could you give us any um, ideas about things that you've either seen or created on TikTok that have worked really well for that family audience? Well, that one worked really well. And then what other bits have we done? Uh, last year, we did some bits for The Valentines by Holly Smale, who's wonderful. And um, we had at the time we had some they're called kid fluences, <laughs> which is a bit of a funny word, but we had some kid fluences creating content about reading the Valentines in the summer. And then we also had some slightly older influencers who were kind of marketing down to more more of that middle grade audience, but you know, family safe, brand safe content, which at the time on TikTok was a little bit, you know, people weren't really sure about it. It was a bit new, a bit scary. Um, but that, you know, went really well and we sort of paired it with some bits on some paid TikTok and Snapchat ads to kind of support and that worked really really well to get that audience it can be quite hard to find would you say tiktok is as important as instagram at the moment in being able to sell a book i would say it's getting there yeah it's instagram particularly because it's so saturated it can be really difficult to cut through and to to shout above the noise on there whereas tiktok again can be difficult the algorithm is really tricky to master but once you have you're onto a winner they both die at the end. A YA title is a massive example of that. Like it's exploded on TikTok, Song of Achilles, you know, books like that, whereas once the audience are enamored by this book, millions of people will be talking about it. Wow, I should sign up. Well, <laughs> no, is it not a good It's amazing. Idea? I, I'm addicted. But if you want any sense of productivity, I don't know if I'd recommend. <laughs> Moving back to Ben and his book specifically, what kind of research do you do when you are planning a campaign around a book like the day I fell into a fairy tale so something like that I would always look at competitor titles and what they've done and what went well what I heard about as well you know being in in the industry you kind of hear what's doing well so you can look at where that how that happened and the strategy there and then I'd say really be up to date and follow the audience so you know think about where they actually are obviously TikTok was the answer in this case so do they watch Sky do they watch ITV what are they doing right now how has lockdown affected them has been a massive one this year mm-hmm. and follow them and basically because once you've got your campaign messaging that's one thing but if you put it in front of someone it's totally irrelevant to it's essentially pointless so following where they are is, is a huge part of the insight and the research into it, any campaign. You guys are quite well known for your your research and what you actually do to get that information. Talk me through what Rocket does to actually get that information from the kids. So we also have our little shots who are fab. They are basically a panel of children of different ages covering mainly the middle grade. And we talk to them all the time. And we also talk to our family collective who are children and also parents. For example, we spoke to them recently about celebrity authors and well-known authors and how that affects them purchasing a children's book and really if their children actually, are they motivated by that at all? Um, And the consensus was generally if it's a voice who the parents feel their child would be safe with, it's a win and and they feel confident in it. But that children generally are more excited about the story and the colours and the cover more than who wrote it. So essentially what came out of that was that it doesn't really affect the children and what they choose to read but it could influence the parents and what they choose to buy absolutely and and obviously in most cases it is the parent who's going to buy it so they are the ones you have to win over so if it is that trusted voice who they think oh they're great I love them I'm sure my kid will love them too then then yeah you're on to a win and is there anything else that came out of those discussions about um, middle grade that our listeners should know 
I think definitely the main themes, like if it's, you know, friendship, courage, bravery, you know, all those things that are quite common themes in middle grade it's getting that across in the campaign of, but also is it going to be fun as well like you, you know you, you want your kids to be occupied and fun and engaged with a with a book <laughs> you don't want them to have to you know there's one thing saying this is you know really educational you'll love it you want them to actually enjoy it um so having some kind of harmony in the in the messaging of yes this is great you want your kids to read it but they also want to read it as well is quite key yeah and apart from Ben did they mention any favorite authors or titles that they're reading at the moment yeah I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear David Walliams had a lot of mentions (laughs) of course (laughs) also depends where the books are available you know his books are usually available in supermarkets which makes them particularly this year when bookshops have been closed makes them hugely accessible to parents and for parents who maybe aren't regular visitors to bookshops, mm. they are just aware of those titles much more because that's where they are. So that that was a major thing that came out of that insight as well. Um, Tom Fletcher is another favourite in terms of celebrity. Because t- obviously, so these names that are coming through, you're mentioning that, you know, Ben, David, Tom Fletcher, they are celebrities. What would you say to a publisher who's listening to this, who thinks, but I've got a really great, funny, magical middle grade book, but the author isn't a celebrity. What can I do so that those kids and those parents know about my book and want to pick it up? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that there, there is absolutely no way that they that you have to have a celebrity author or you have to even have an author involved. There are well-known authors and massively well-known series that we don't really see any author involvement. Diary of a Wimpy Kid, for example, we don't do tons of author involvement when we've worked on those books at all and they are some of the biggest selling books in the UK so it's not imperative it is lovely but it's it's not it's not a must so I'd say like a massive way to get in front of kids particularly with you know say for example they want to laugh or it's quite a magical book which usually they are um if you can work with a media owner um, or a big children's brand in collaboration or even an influencer partnership something collaboration where that you're then utilizing quite a trusted platform or voice in a different way so you are bringing in that element of trust and like you know recommendation with as someone that they place value in that isn't a celebrity author but it's it's adding that element into the campaign in a different way I would say that (laughs) thank you very much now Ben let's go back to the beginning and talk about how you became a children's author you started writing these books for your children but did you have the goal of being published one day um well no I mean I sort of I've always wanted I've always wanted to write fiction but I, th- I sort of started by, I mean, obviously I wrote comedy for years and years, you know, I wrote a script writer for years. And then I wrote some non-fiction books. I wrote some science books that I really enjoyed. And I found what I enjoyed most about the science books was the storytelling side of them, was finding a story that I could hook somebody in with. And then when my children started to get to reading age, when Jackson, my oldest son, started to, you know, he really started to get into reading. And I, re- I realised and really remembered that when I'd been his age, I'd been a voracious reader and I'd loved stories and I'd loved books. So I was constantly finding books for him to read. And then I started to think, well, maybe, maybe I could, maybe I could write something for him. Maybe I could write a story for him. And I wrote the first book on spec. I wrote it as something to read to him at Christmas. And I put it away for it. So I wrote, you know, so I, I wrote it. It was an amazing experience actually writing that book because I, I literally had the whole idea for the book as I was walking my dog. So I went the walked the dog for about half an hour. When I left the house, no idea in my head. By the time I came back, I had every beat of that story 
in my head and I just quickly wrote it down. And about a year later, I very quickly wrote it as a story, read it to him at Christmas. So he would have been about eight, nine then. And then I put it away for a year. And then the, ne the following Christmas, I picked it up and read it to him again. I thought, do you know what? Maybe, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe somebody, maybe somebody would publish this. And so then I started sort of, you know, putting feelers out to see if anybody, anybody was interested. I got a lot of interest in it. And that mm. was very, very exciting. And um, and then I spoke to um, Jane Griffiths, who was at the time was at Simon Schuster. And we had a, and she just completely got it. She just completely got the story. And I had this very exciting conversation with her, where mainly she was telling me what was wrong with it. <laughs> but they were all, but do you know what? They were all the things that she was telling me were, were was wrong with it were things that I'd known were wrong with it but hadn't okay. wanted to admit to myself and I thought oh wow if I could if I could do this is what I need to do you know this is what I need to do so we sort of more or less started again actually mm. with, the with the story and kind of reworked the whole thing we added another story thread to it and we kind of developed other bits of it and then it properly became a book but that that was an exciting an exciting journey writing that you know writing that first story because you don't know if you can do it do you mm. know what I mean it's a bit like saying oh I'm going to swim the channel mm. and you've got no idea if you can you know, no idea if you can swim the channel or not but you've got to raise the money and you've got to get a sponsorship and you've got to get a trawler boat to follow you over there and come back with you even even before you know whether you can do it or not mm. yeah a bit of a learning curve I imagine uh, what's yeah. what are the big differences between writing a comedy script for performing on stage or on telly compared to writing a children's book I think the main thing is, you know, the audience on stage are not in your head, you know, whereas mm. in a story, you're in the head of the character you're experiencing. I mean, even if you're writing, I mean, I tend to write in third person, but it's a very close third person. I'm, I'm really, everything is from the intense point of view of that character. And I'm kind of in their head and sometimes describing, you know, describing what they're thinking and feeling mm. as if it's happening to me. And I think that's, that's what I always love about reading books. And that's the itch that a book scratches that no, I can't get from anything else. Because every other dramatic form, you know, you're looking at what people do, you're looking at scenes, you're trying to figure out what they're thinking and feeling from their actions, essentially. But, you know, in a book, you're right there, you're right behind that character's eyes, seeing the world as they, as they see it. And that's, that's an extraordinary experience. And it means that when we read, you know, when you read as a child, you get something, you, you get such a huge gift because you have, it's just, this is why I think reading is so brilliant for children, is you really get to inhabit, see the world from another person's point of view. I think that's incredibly important for yeah. children, for their imaginations, for their development, for their confidence, for their empathy, for their social skills, everything. Yeah, it's magical. You've got three children, so we've covered your first book and your third book, but obviously in the middle there was a book um, about black holes and a boy who's given a black hole at a party. Now that was for your your second child, is that right? Yes, yeah. So Harrison, I hope he doesn't listen to this one. Well, if he does, no, it's fine. I mean, he, he has a bit of a, he's a bit of short fuse, Harrison. And I had this idea for a story where he lost his temper at a friend's birthday party and instead of a balloon, they gave him a black hole and a piece of string. And I had this idea for ages. I couldn't figure out what black hole, you know, what's, why a black hole? I really couldn't figure it out at all. And then I realised that black hole, the black hole was kind of his, his existential angst. <laughs> 
the great thing about a black hole is you can put every, anything you like into a black hole and never come back. Mm. So anything that made him angry, he could put it into the black hole and he'd never see it again. So in the story, he starts putting in, you know, things like boiled peas and stuff that he really doesn't like. Then in goes the school bully. Then finally, in go his parents. And he realised he has to try and get his parents back. So that then becomes the sort of challenge of the second half of the book is to understand black holes enough to try and get his parents out of the black hole. Um, and that kind of involved lots of fun things, lots of genuine physics of black holes, actually. There's this theory that if you fall in to a spinning black hole in just the right way, then you can come out at a different point in time. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, well, I have a sort of time travel bit in there. I loved, write, I loved writing that story. It was, um, it was really, really useful for, useful for me because I kind of really got to understand Harrison much better and to understand that his anger was really a sort of mask for anxiety mm. and worry. And re- writing that book really helped me uh, really helped me understand him a, a lot better, actually. And he really, he really helped me with the story. Actually, he really, um, he was very, very attentive to the writing. With all my stories, I read them a lot to my kids as I'm writing them. I guess because I started out that way with the first one, and and they and they're, they're great, you know, because they're they're list- Harrison was gave me lots of notes basically he was very concerned with that what how I portrayed school nothing to do with how I put him as having a temper or something I didn't my, he, I had no problem with any of that but he thought that I got a lot of things at school wrong and he sort of put me right on all kinds how all kinds of different things work at school do you know what that was really really useful because um if there's one reader you're not going to fool <laughs> with your description of school it's the school child <laughs> oh, no no I, don't, I get like you know all children are sort of like your kids and I suppose your kids more than any other child they're going to give you honest feedback aren't they they're going to say if it works if it doesn't of course yeah your kids especially yeah mm-hmm. your kids other kids might feel they have to be polite but you know oh this bit's boring daddy or oh I like that person or that's a good joke or I don't get that it's all very very um it's very useful I think I'm very lucky as well in that I'm I'm really immersed in this world because I'm, I've got children. So I've got a 14 year old now and a nine year old and a five year old. So I'm, you know, the 14 year olds reading Alan Garner, the Owl Service. Uh, what's Harrison reading at the moment? We've got, you know, we've been into, we're sort of starting Ina Blight and stuff with, with Harrison. Lana is very much into her fairy tales and Sleeping Beauty and all of that kind of stuff. I get exposed to so much of this world. It's, yeah. And to them at their ages, you know, it's, it's, uh, I find it really, um, I find it really inspiring, actually. And we should also mention uh, you, that you're working with the illustrator Daniela Terrazzini. Mm. Uh, did I say her name right? Yeah, I love, I mean, Daniela is the most extraordinary illustrator. So I knew from the very start that I wanted to write books that were illustrated and I wanted to, um, create this world that felt very real so that you felt you could almost step into the illustrations and be in that world. I felt like the fashion at the time and possibly still now was for very um, cartoon-like sort of illustrations of children's books. And I felt I I wanted to do something that was completely the opposite. And it was actually very hard to find an illustrator that did that. I mean, we we had a global search actually to find the, every everywhere to try and find the right illustrator. And just when we'd given up, we found Daniela and it was just, I can't tell you when I saw, I, <laughs> I saw her illustrations. I just, 
I completely lost it. I completely lost it emotionally. I still do. It was, it was partly relief because we had to publish the book, you know, in about, in, you know, in, a, in, a, in some short order. But what I loved, loved about her illustrations was they, they felt very magical themselves. There was an element, something slightly unsettling about all of them, something slightly otherworldly about her drawing, something magical about them that I felt children would just absolutely love mm. and they'd absolutely connect with. And when I do school talks, unfortunately, we've not been able to do any for, you know, for the last uh, year or so. When I do schools tours, the children, Daniela comes with me and the children just love her and love her, mm. to, you know, love her descriptions of how she does her drawings. And she illustrates in quite an unusual way. She, she holds um, her, she illustrates with a pencil and she grips the pencil like this okay she draws like that she doesn't she doesn't use a, a tripod grip she, she draws her she, fist yeah mm. fit. it's quite extraordinary to see her her work and hear her talk about her journey as an illustrator you know from being told that she couldn't draw to producing these beautiful beautiful illustrations when I get to see Danielle I'm always I'm always saying to Lucy my editor you know as soon as Danielle has got something please please let me see it because I find that really helps me then with the writing once I can see see the characters I find that ah oh, right okay that that gives me a whole other oh interesting yeah, yeah so it's quite collaborative then the work that you do together yeah maybe not from Daniela's point of view but it is from my point of view when I see her illustrations yeah I kind of I often rewrite and I'll, re I'll go and rewrite things to fit what she's drawn. I find I can describe what the characters are like on the inside, but not on the outside. When I see how she's drawn them, like there's an old lady who's really, I mean, she's really a sort of witch in the Boy Who Made the World Disappear. She's kind of white witch character. And Daniela's drawing of her, oh my word, that's the first time I saw it. I just couldn't, again, you know, I get very emotional. I just think, yes, that's her. That's her. That's exactly what she looks like. <laughs> beautiful so you take Daniela um uh, to schools uh, what else do you do to keep the kids entertained when we do book tours you mean um, yeah yeah well we I mean we have a whole sort of we're like a traveling circus really we have a whole I I love it because you suddenly got a whole you know hall full of eight-year-olds <laughs> and the teachers pretty much teachers pretty much let you you know it's pretty much free reign in terms of the material that you teach so uh, we we had a lot, it's very visual. We do, I have lots of illustrations and as many personal illustrations of my kids and the things that inspired me in the story, but also quite sneakily all the way through the talk as we're going, I've got little facts that I'm, I'm adding in. At the end, we have a big quiz and the passion that children have for quizzing is something you have to be there to sort of, to, to sort of fully experience. But at the end, I test them and I pit, <laughs> it's every man for themselves, you know, and they're kind of all competing against each other to try and get all the questions in this quiz that we'll have, we'll have given them all the clues to along the way. They're really, it's really, really great fun. Uh, yeah, presumably you haven't been doing a whole load of uh, live events in recent months. Have you managed to do some, some online things? I've done some readings on Zoom, you know, I've just done stuff for Authorfy, I've done stuff, all, this, all, the, um, all the things you can, you know, we've done, we did stuff for World Book Day, but... As you can imagine, you know, there is no substitute for children being with other children and just that response, you know, that kind of getting the set, reading the room, getting the sense of what they're interested in, what they would like to talk about, what they want to, the points of the story that they've, that they've connected with and exploring those. You can't really do that in a Zoom, it's just too one way. 
And um, I'm not sure it's even good for kids to sit at screens for the length of time that they've had to in the last year. Mm. And I think we're all counting the days, really, until we can start doing live events again. Oh, definitely. Now, at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that Simon Schuster said that this is going to be a really big year for you and your children's publishing. So tell us about the exciting things you have coming up this autumn. It is really, really exciting. I mean, I had quite, um, I had quite an amazing year this year in that, you know, the, the first two books, it was very encouraging, the response we got from the first two books. And I was so happy with how they did. I mean, we all were. And then things have just kind of gone crazy with this third one. It seems to, it seems to have really connected. I think maybe it's always a bit like that. I mean, I remember doing my experience of TV series is it's never until you're doing your third or fourth series that things really catch on. And it's been a bit like that with the books. So this year I'm doing two, I've got Fairytale coming out now in, um, in paperback at Easter. And then I've got in the um, early autumn, I've got a, uh, I'm not actually sure I'm allowed to say the title. So um, let's just call it Untitled Hardback Book. Mm. Yeah, that's coming in September. And that's a story about a boy who swaps souls with his neighbour's dog. Brilliant. And then I have a book called The Diary of a Christmas Elf coming out at Christmas, which is pretty much as it says on the tin, (laughs) really. It's a story of a wannabe uh, workshop elf trying to climb the greasy pole of um, toy making. (laughs) (laughs) And will you do anything else with fairy tales? Because I really loved the day I fell into a fairy tale. I'd love to do more. Yeah, I would love to do more with fairy tales. I'm reading a lot of um, Nordic fairy tales at the moment and I'm finding those really, really... I'm a big fan of Alan Garner and a lot of his his stories seem to stem from these sort of, uh, you know, Norse myths and, and, and fairy tales. So I'm hoping something will come of that. And I think the most... As I say, the, the fairy tales that always grip me are the ones that I can't, once I've heard it, I can't forget it. And I have no idea what it means. And it, yeah, they're like a kind of strange recurring dream that you're always searching for the meaning of. And that you feel there's something, you, you feel like something on the other side is trying to tell you something important, but you don't quite know what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now we're nearly out of time, but before you go, I'm just going to ask you the questions that we ask all our guests. Ooh. So the first one is who in the children's book world do you really admire and why? Oh, so many. I mean, too, too many to mention. I think Alan, Gar- Alan Garner is one of my particular heroes because I'm from the same part of the, I'm, I'm from the Northwest. He was from the Northwest. The Owl Service, I just remember, I just absolutely loved that story growing up and there was a very very spooky tv version of it that was on as well at the time and he's one of those kind of he's a bit like as he's sort of like the method actor of of children's authors really so you go off for like five years researching norse myths <laughs> and then write one story and then he'd go off for another five years and then write another so he's a sort of um he's a talisman of mine and then i've always loved a.a a. milne i can't it's just so poetic. It's the right. The writing is so poetic, so mm. funny, creating a whole sort of you know, a whole style of its own, and and again, really seems to mean something. I think it's. I think I really love children's stories that that mean something. I'm not. I'm not a fan of the of the nihilistic children's <laughs> children's story genre. You know, 
I, I loved to read Roald Dahl as a child and you know my kids my kids love Roald Dahl but I suppose I'm, I'm trying to do the opposite to what Roald Dahl did. Offer a little bit of hope. Offer a little just a glimmer of <laughs> just, a, just the faintest dying ember of hope in this in this forlorn world yeah yeah. What is the best thing about making and selling children's books in the UK? I mean it's just such a a vibrant industry here. We have so many fantastic authors and illustrators. Every uh, age group of, of children's writing, there's just a leading, not only just one leading author, but a whole host of, of leading authors. So the fact that the that we um, we have this this tradition of authorship means we also have a great tradition of readership. I don't know which comes first as a sort of virtuous circle, isn't it? But it really does feel like a very fertile ground here. This is a great place to try and nudge your way into the world of children's publishing because there's a really, really hungry audience out there. There's an audience that really... And I was also very surprised when I first started. I, I thought it would only be children that read the books, but I'm amazed how many adults... I thought I was the only adult who reads children's books, but no, you know, far from it. You know, there are there are so many, so many adults out there reading these books too, and I think that's a great thing as well. It's very good for you to read children's fiction, and I think I, I sort of look very suspiciously at any author who says they don't read children's fiction or that they don't have an interest in it, because I think where is your imagination if not in your childhood? You know, where is your you know where's your love of language if not in the first words you ever heard? You know, what's your what's your purchase on the world if you didn't get your first glimpse of it through a children's book? I mean, I I just I don't buy it myself. I think it's very important, children's literature. And I think we're really, really lucky in this country is that, in that we value it as literature as well. I agree 100%. Now, finally, what are you looking forward to in the year ahead? Um, well, apart from, obviously, my um, stratospheric publishing career, <laughs> I'm, I'm really... Uh, well, you know, a number of things. I mean, I'm I'm really, really looking forward to being able to perform live again, it's really important to me to, to be in front of audiences. I kind of, you know, and not, you know, probably because I'm a very needy individual. But no, I also just love, I just love that thing of being, of being in front of a live audience. It's an experience that you can, that, you, that I've missed so much. And I've missed having as well. I love live events and going to live events. I think the theatre, being, to sit in a theatre and hear a play, I can't wait. I can't wait to be in that, no man's land when the everybody the audience suddenly decides that the play is about to begin and it all goes quiet even before the actors have decided that the play started I love that moment it's very interesting when you're on stage when that happens is you're all sort of waiting backstage and suddenly the audience go quiet nobody tells them to go quiet they just go quiet they have decided that the play's started and when they go quiet like that then you better get on stage within a minute you better get on stage pretty quickly I love that thing I love that kind of the way that a whole group of people suddenly think with one mind, they, they, they applaud or they go quiet or they all get restless and fidgety and coffee, you know, all at the same time. <laughs> it's like everybody, some weird, weird thing happens where we all sync up, you know, and we've all missed that, haven't we? We've all, we all want that chance to plug in and be part of something bigger. Definitely. And, you know, 
children and readers and young people in schools they've all missed it too so I'm sure they will be looking forward to uh, seeing you do your stuff very soon yeah exactly that would be the really lovely thing I mean wouldn't it be let's just dream for a moment and imagine that in this this coming autumn we can have school events again and that we can uh yeah bring books into schools again and laugh and joke and quiz with children and get them excited about reading let's just imagine for a moment that that's possible and then we'll add a bit of you know sprinkle of sugar on the top imagine we can also go to a christmas panther that would be amazing <laughs> that would be fantastic <laughs> Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you, Ben, for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Chapter and Verse, The Art of Selling Children's Books. My guests were Ben Miller and Georgia Henry. Please get in touch with any questions or comments via social media at The Bookseller on Twitter and at WeAreRocketHQ on Twitter or Instagram. And don't forget to check in with us in two weeks' time. See you then.